So welcome to our weekly biotech hangout. With me are my co-hosts, Josh Schimmer and Rob Perez. We have a few other guest co-hosts in the audience um, that maybe will join us later. We also have a couple of special guests that are going to be joining us today. DICE CEO Kevin Judice, who was in the news last week, and Alex Harding from Remix and formerly of Atlas, who will discuss uh, the very thoughtful piece he wrote about the Inflation Reduction Act and its near-term impact on biotech strategy. So before we kick off, just invite Josh and Rob if they want to say anything. Well, I, first of all, I just want to say thanks for including me. This is a real honor to be a part of this. And uh, thanks to you, Daphne, for keeping this going from the Clubhouse um, hangout that we did. And I'm looking forward to being a part of it. Great. Well, we're yeah, from, uh, and hopefully you can hear me okay. I know I've had some, some sound challenges in the past, but I'll try to speak up little bit more clearly uh and as always read my disclosures evercore isi disclosures for the companies that i cover can be found on the biotech hang hangout homepage. and uh any comments i make are not intended to be investment advice for any of the companies that uh, we may be discussing great well welcome everyone and um, we'll just kick off with biotech m a so our colleague, Tim Opler, put together an analysis which shows that this year so far, we have a record-breaking number of M&A deals, more than double what we've seen in most years since 2000, but that the deal size is much smaller than in recent years, which appears to translate to overall M&A being in line with past years, and, and um, it seems to be the case. So far this year, the top 20 pharma companies have paid out about $31 billion in M&A deals which is right in line with the 2009 to 2021 median that has historically been around 34 billion for the full year. And I think most of us expect to see M&A increase from these top pharma companies with healthy balance sheets and patents like Keytruda, Humira, Revlimid, et cetera, going generic between 2023 and 2030. BMS, Pfizer, and Merck are faced with the biggest patent cliffs in the 2026 to 29 period with AbbVie and Sanofi at least exposed of those top 20 pharma companies. And, you know, as we discussed a few weeks ago, Pfizer has been the most active on the M&A side with Biohaven, Global Blood and others uh, being really large deals. And then Jane, Jane, Novartis, Merck and BMS are lagging. One thing I've been hearing is that there's a disconnect between what companies expect and what pharma is willing to pay. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, uh, Josh, Bruce and Rob. Yeah, it's it's something we generally don't get much insight into on the on the research side. Bankers are much more involved in those conversations. Um, you know, Bruce, you may have particular insights. Um, you know, I think what from 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 my lens is what we're seeing is kind of a natural byproduct of an industry that really expanded rapidly, and you know, overlaying on top of that the reality that most biotech companies aren't built to last. Right, like they don't have robust business models. And so you, it, it kind of culminates in uh, a higher number of lower value deals as I guess, you know, I think we're all hoping and waiting for pharma to start doing some things a little bit more definitively and demonstratively in the space with, with larger deals, if, if and when they're ready. I mean, there, there, there is always those that um, percolate along and some years we have more, some years we have, uh, we have less, but it's also to me, a reminder for the industry to really focus on figuring out sustainable growth strategies. And a, a one or a two product company doesn't really give you that, uh, that opportunity. And I think relevant, Daphne, to your work at, at PureTech, right? Like we see companies like PureTech, Royvent, BridgeBio, that are, they're really being built to try to find that those diversified portfolios, multiple shots on goal to create something that a one or a two product company can't necessarily do. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, really a, a function of a tighter capital market and companies, um, uh, just as Josh said, trying to figure out how to finance their plan. Um, there were a lot more options available you know, uh, a year or 18 months ago. And so now they have to think about, um, you know, wh whether 
bringing on a, a partner from pharma and um, doing a deal uh, might look a lot different and a lot more viable today than it did when the markets were, were uh, much more willing to support, uh, to support these companies in, in kind of a one product scenario. Rob, what do you see on the yeah. private equity side? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, please. No, I was just going to jump in on the on the M and A um, stats. You know, the the fact that this year has seen a high, you know, a higher volume of deal activity. You know, I'd say is counter to the sense, at least, um, because there's been you know so few larger deals that you know things have been rather quiet for eighteen months, in my opinion, on the dollar side of the M and A environment and. 2019, um, you saw three mega mergers and then lots of other deals. 2020, um, a, a reasonable number of large dollar deals. And so those felt like more aggressive M&A environments. Today, you know, a lot of the deals outside of a few signature ones um, are almost bottom feeding style deals. So they're coming in and acquiring, you know, public companies on for very inexpensive numbers. Logic Bio by AZ being a good example of that. Um, you know, that, that's obviously not the kind of stuff that gets investors super excited. It, it may be part of the healthy consolidation and cleansing of the market that, that's needed. But, you know, I'd say no, no one on the investor side is, uh, is super psyched about where the dollar values are on the M&A side of things. And, you know, listening to my portfolio companies talk, you know, the 50 or so Atlas portfolio companies, you know, it, it's clear pharma is not aggressively approaching the M&A question right now. Yep. So Daphne, on the private equity side, uh, I think private equity firms and General Atlantic specifically, I think this is a time where we feel that we could be very helpful to companies because we have long-term capital. We, um, uh, I think, can partner with companies who are looking for alternatives in a tighter capital market. Um, I also think that that you see private equity firms um, engaging with public companies more in this environment, um, often because of the, you know, private private companies may or may not have a sense for what their real valuations are today. Public companies know it, and so uh, it does give public companies a chance to uh, put some of the deep-pocketed private equity. Um, toolkit to work. And I think that's something that uh, you're seeing private equity firms do is having lots of discussions to see how they can be an alternative to, um, to public markets, either through pipes or through working with, with uh, private companies that, again, um, may have really viable uh, plans, but, but are down to smaller options or fewer options to finance those plans. So, um, you know, firms like GA that, that are able to um, be a long-term partner become a lot more attractive in this type of an environment. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to see new players come in. So whether it be private equity or royalty players, um, there's a few interesting things that happened last week and this week as well. Before we jump into the deals of the week, which I would say very much fall in line with what Bruce described, these smaller deals, um, before we jump into those, maybe, Josh, you could cover Roche earnings. Josh, I think you're on mute. Uh, thank you. I keep making that mistake. Um, yeah, so we had third quarter earnings kick off this week, Roche and J&J reporting kind of very different large pharma companies. Uh, I think probably illustrative of what to expect throughout third quarter, some some puts and some takes and, you know, overall that, you know, neither stock had, had much of a move. Um, Roche fielded a lot of questions around its gentanirumab amyloid antibody program for Alzheimer's that's going to be reporting phase three by year-end parsing quite closely the the comments of the company of how they're going to analyze the two trials seem to me like probably reading in a little too much relative to what Roche probably knows now, but we'll hopefully get those results in the, uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, one of the highlights for their quarter um, is the launch of a Bismo for wet AMD and DME. And that's a drug that's actually going to be annualizing probably north of a billion within the next um, two or three quarters representing one of the fastest product launches in um, in the therapeutic space. And then we also have Regeneron, 
looking to defend its ILEA franchise in what AMD and DME with its high-dose ILEA. And they recently reported and presented the phase three uh, data. And, and, and as, as Vibismo is kind of having a strong launch and, and by the sounds of it, taking um, share from ILEA, th- this is um, Regeneron's uh, response. The, the challenge, what, what I find interesting is that when you look across these, what AMD and, and diabetic macular edema trials, is that there are all these like nuances to trial designs that make it really hard to get a clear apples to apples comparison across the trials. And Roche actually made this point on the earnings call, um, noting that in the, in the Vibismo trials, they, they really made sure that the patient's retinas stayed free of fluid, right? The fluid can be a harbinger of irreversible vision loss. Whereas in the Regeneron studies of Hydosilea, they actually let the retinas run a little bit wetter. And so you kind of have to make that adjustment. And Roche even helped make some of that adjustment uh, on their earnings uh, call because there's a lot of back and forth between you know the two companies and how these two drugs are ultimately going to um, uh, fit in and position w- within this multi-multi-billion dollar uh, back-of-the-eye unmet medical need. Uh, Vibismo has generated really strong feedback from retina specialists who who are, you know, seeing it being able to dry the eyes of uh, refractory patients uh, better than other approved therapies, and, and that may be because it inhibits ang two as well as VEGF. And you know, we're just going to have to wait and see how, um, you know, how the specialists respond to high dose ILEA once it reaches the market next year, but a very dynamic, a very important space, just given how, how large it is. Um, Roche's Lucentis had a weak quarter. So, so this is kind of the, the drug that's on the way out in the VEGF and, and uh, in the wet AMDs and DME space. Um, and Roche didn't really give any visibility as to why it was weak. It's, it's possible that there was some conversion to Vibismo, possible some share loss to biosimilars, possibly some pricing erosion. So it's another aspect that we're watching um, fairly uh, fairly closely. J and J, kind of a couple of highlights there. We saw a, a pretty significant FX impact from the from the very strong do- dollar. What's also interesting is J and J is really building a very unique presence in myeloma. Right, Darzelex has turned into a multi billion dollar product. But they're also um, launching Curvicti, the the CAR T with uh, with Legend, and that product's getting very good receptivity as it works through some of the initial supply constraints. They also have J and J has a BCMA bispecific. It should be coming to the market soon, which is kind of a reminder of the portfolio uh, power and approach for for specific disease indications and how meaningful and influential that can that can make companies. And so. You know, J and J has really taken the mantle in uh, in myeloma in an important way. It's not something that we we tend to focus on that much in in biotech. You know, we often see companies um, dipping their toes into various therapeutic categories and not necessarily strateg- strategizing around a portfolio. Uh, but I think it's it's important to think about, especially if we if we want to consider sustainable businesses and 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 growth models. Mm-hmm. Um- did either one of those companies talk about M&A or what are your thoughts with regard to J&J and Roche? No, I think, I think the, the focus for, for these companies hasn't quite been on M&A so much as new product cycles. Um, I don't think they necessarily come up as on, on the short list of companies that, that might be uh, um, in, in greater need of something on the near term horizon. Mm-hmm. So this week in deals, uh, you know, as Bruce was mentioning, the deals that we're seeing, they tend to be a little bit smaller. So um, this week we saw a few. Lilly is acquiring Acuos, which is a hearing loss company, which is developing genetic medicines. They're acquiring them for $610 million, which is a premium of about 121% over the 30-day VWAP uh, at $12 plus a $3 CVR. Uh, important to know that that's still below the IPO price of $17. So, um, you know, a good deal, but um, not not the kind of thing that everybody's going to be super excited about. AbbVie is acquiring a private UK-based biotech called DJS Antibodies for $255 million in cash. 
Uh, the deals focused on IPF and other fibrotic diseases. And for me, it was, what was interesting to read was that DJS had only raised six million pounds in seed financing to date. So that was a really nice return for founders and early investors. And then in later stage deals, LG Chem is taking Aveo Private in an all-cash deal worth $566 million or $15 per share, which is a 43% premium to the previous day's closing price. Um, but as recently as one month ago, Aveo had traded at $8. So um, that's, that was nice appreciation since then. Aveo's lead drug is approved for renal cell carcinoma and generated about $39 million in revenue last year. Um, that's a company that all of us have known for many years. Uh, I don't know if anybody wants to comment on that. I just think it's worth noting um, you made the comment about um, the, the acquisition of the Oxford company and the, what looks like fantastic potential returns on paper for the founding team and the seed investors. You know, the other two M&A events here, you know, the, the Accuos um, deal you know, they raised something like 375 million over their, you know, five-year lifetime. So the Series A probably made about a 2x return and everyone else is either flat or underwater, which, you know, as you say, doesn't um, doesn't ring a lot of bells, but, you know, good to see Lily starting to consolidate. I think this is their second um, neuro-based AAV acquisition in the last 12 months or so. You know, Aveo is an interesting story because it started out 22 years ago or something like that, spent its first 10 years figuring out, you know, animal models and, uh, um, you know, getting some things into the clinic. It went public, I think, over a decade ago. It was either 2012 or 2011 that it went public, something like that. And what a uh, what a wild journey since then for those uh, those folks. But kind of, uh, you know, in some ways, a sad outcome after two decades yeah, lots of great people have uh, come through Aveo, and and um, it's it's been a very rough ride, but it's it's good to see at least that uh, kind of it's landed a home. And I think the other the other kind of interesting part and kind of a watch this space is LG Chem, a large you know a large Korean company with lots of resources, um, you know, entering the space and uh, seeing what they're going to do uh, as they as they acquire Aveo. Yeah. That's it's. Uh, I think that that's really interesting. They were making noise about building this, you know, major franchise. So that's sort of interesting. Um, you know what? One thing that we saw this week was companies announcing good news and then trading down. So um, Josh, maybe you can cover Milestone, and um, and I can talk a little bit about Macrogenics. Sure. Um, so Milestone reported positive phase three results for its intranasal calcium channel blocker at Tripamil for. Uh, PSVT or paroxysmal supraventricular tachycardia, and and they showed a, a very meaningful benefit in aborting attacks, even reducing the rate at which patients uh, went to the emergency room. But despite that, the stock, you know, which had initially traded up on the news, sold off over forty percent on the week. Um, that's in juxtaposition for for the way the sector has been behaving lately, where stocks are usually going up and and often quite significantly with positive news. Recent example. Um, that we'll be talking about soon is, is Dice Therapeutics, and, uh, and Kevin Judis will join to talk about that. That stock's still up 90%, or more than 90% for, uh, for the month. So not, not sure if you know, there was something unique to, uh, to Milestone that, that caused its sell-off as, as a bit of an, an anomaly for how stocks have been trading lately, and, and hopefully not a, a harbinger of us entering another bearish biotech tape. But that's kind of one of the reasons I, I try to track binary events fairly closely, just to make sure that the stocks are going in the right direction relative to the incremental news that they've had. And when they stop doing that, that can make for a very, very difficult investment tape. Yeah, it's interesting. There was a couple of other sort of relevant uh, deals. So one was uh, Gilead announced a deal with Macrogenics uh, with $60 million up front and $1.7 billion in BioBucks around an early clinical stage antibody. And it was interesting that Macrogenics initially traded up by 17% and then dropped into the red. And then another one, um, which we've all been tracking, is Prime, uh, which is everybody, I think, has been following it, a preclinical CRISPR 3.0 company, which priced an upsized 175 million IPO at, at uh, 1.8 billion valuation, which is very healthy for a preclinical company at $17 per share. 
Then they quickly broke price and they were trading down to about 15. It's important to say that this is the worst year for IPOs in biotech since 2012. There have only been four biotechs which have priced um, new stock offerings, new IPOs basically since mid-May. And um, and then you, you wonder, the capital markets seem to be functioning though because you have Denali announcing a $270 million follow-on and um, they were priced at a slight discount. They were upsized and then um, Biohaven, which we'll talk about in a moment. So I'm um, curious if anybody has any comments on any of that. Well, one comment on, on the Prime um, uh, IPO is that while the IPO window is certainly not wide open, I think it does signal that, that quality companies with strong management teams are able to get through. And I think um, Prime is an example. Third Harmonic, um, which uh, is a GA investment, um, is another example of a company that was able to get through with really interesting technology, a terrific management team, and um, has uh, held up uh, after market as well. So there's, while it's true that the IPO window is nowhere near what it used to be, I do think that um, this is a, a good sign for the market that uh, quality companies still can access public markets and be able to uh, um, to get the benefits of an IPO. Yeah, and this might be a good segue for Josh to introduce Kevin at Dice because they really did see that positive momentum um, last week. And before you do that, though, quickly, could you cover Zymeworks and Jazz? Yeah, sure. Um, so Zymeworks had a couple of interesting updates this week. First, they partnered their uh, their lead HER2 by HER2 by specific with uh, with Jazz. They got fifty million up front, as well as a three hundred and twenty five million opt in payment after their uh, pivotal biliary tract cancer data readout um, emerges. And Jazz has a chance to look at the data, as well as like over a billion in BioBox and a ten to twenty percent royalty. And then then the next day, they turned around and hosted an analyst event. They really did a, a good job um, uh, framing their next generation efforts, both with ADCs as well as buy and try specific antibodies. They added a few ADC programs to the portfolio. They're developing um, tri specifics that can target both CD3 and CD28, as well as the target antigen. That's, that's something Regeneron's been pioneering with, with separate antibodies to CD3 and CD28. So it makes sense to try to blend that all into one uh, molecule. As well, by specifics that can target CD3 and, and PDL1, as well as a target antigen. So, you know, this is a company that was one of the early leaders in by specific technologies, and I think many investors felt like they actually got leapfrogged by by their by specific companies who who made inroads with the T cell engaging constructs. Um, and I, I thought I thought Zymerx did a really good job making the case that they, they actually are still a technology leader and innovating and, and investing in advancing and innovating both on the ADC and, and by specific fronts. So it'll be really interesting to watch that company in the in the months and years to uh, to come. But yeah, maybe we can um, bring Kevin up. So so Kevin Judis, uh, CEO of Dice, he puts the Dice into, into Dice. Uh, what, what, one of the, the hot companies around, one of the coolest CEOs that that I know, and and a few a few relevant themes to to talk about for for Dice. Um, and Kevin, maybe we can first get you to uh, to to frame the recent uh, data update for the oral IL seventeen program. Sure. Uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here today, guys. Um, so what happened recently was we read out uh, data from our phase one trial, which had a bit of an unusual twist. Um, you know, the first two parts were normal SADMAT and healthy volunteers. And then uh, we baked in a phase one C uh, to look at efficacy in psoriasis patients. And um, we thought we could do that because of the peculiarities of psoriasis as an indication. Uh, you know, the readout is pretty easy compared to something like IBD, for example. Um, the effects that one typically sees by effective intervention in, uh, in particular, the IL-17 pathway are pretty fast. Uh, so we thought, you know, although we only had four weeks of coverage, we thought we might have a shot at seeing efficacy in four weeks. And if we did, that would be an important step forward. And that's, in fact, what we saw. Uh, we definitely saw impact on PASI scores. We saw uh, great dose-dependent responses on uh, 
uh, a pair of important biomarkers and well-validated biomarkers. You know, on top of that, uh, the PK and the safety both look really good. So, you know, the takeaway there was we were really we were really thrilled with the data. Um, and uh, I think someone, maybe you, Josh, mentioned, you know, the market responded well to that. And that put us in a position uh, to think about raising money. So, yeah, it was uh, it was certainly been an exciting couple of weeks at DICE. Yeah, no doubt. And this is this is how biotech has to work, right? Good news, stock goes up and the ability to, to tap the capital markets to to fund ongoing development. Um, one of the one of the themes that I, I find really interesting is that we're kind of in this era of of what I think are small molecule platforms. Like, like when we talk about platforms, we often talk about gene edit, RNAi, mRNA, like these new technologies that, that can unlock various diseases, but there, there's a small number of companies that are working on small molecule approaches, but applying them in a way that, fe- that has a platform feel to it in terms of being modular, in terms of being reproducible. And it, it's a little bit semantics, how, how you want to define platform, and then you could probably define it in a few different ways. But, but Kevin, maybe you can talk about the, you know, the approach you're taking to, to, developing small molecule drugs across an array of validated INI targets. Yeah. So we, um, you know, when we started DICE, it was, it was primarily a technology company. And as with most technology companies, there was a, a period of casting about where we tried to figure out, you know, a couple of things. Number one, what could the technology really do? And number two, and really importantly, to try and Venn diagram that with, you know, of, of the possible things we could do, which would be valuable in, you know, in pharma. In other words, which would favorably impact uh, the value chain in some, uh, in some important way. Uh, and that means, you know, typically solving a hard problem, right? Uh, and so as we worked through that, we realized, you know, well, gee, for reasons we candidly didn't understand at the beginning, we seem to be having some success on targets that had previously been refractory to small molecule intervention, namely uh, protein-protein interface type targets. And as we dug deeper into that, uh, we came to realize, well, gee, you know, part of the reason we're probably having some success here is, is the technological approach we're taking. You know, we were using DNA encoded libraries in what was, you know, by that point, a different way we thought than the rest of the industry. So that was definitely helping. A lot of it had to do with the choice of targets and and some uh, epiphanies we had about the structural biology of targets against which we were succeeding that then led us to reevaluate. So, well, gee, you know, everywhere we've we've had success with this particular approach, it seems like the targets we're looking at are dimeric or trimeric, you know, and as you dig in, this is a, you know, 2022 is a much different environment than when I started in industry, you know, almost 30 years ago. Crystal structures were rare then, they're common now. So, you know, you can go to the PDB and just peruse and look around and see what targets, you know, we were having success with and say, well, gee, they all fit this rubric. You know, maybe this is a way to inhibit this class of PPI. And that then led to the third part of the Venn diagram, which was, okay, cool, let's, let's assume you can do this where is it really going to matter, right? Uh, you know, the, the first thing that jumped out at us was there are a lot of antibodies that have been developed over the last 20 years that tell us a ton of useful information about various pathways, you know, and, and the effectiveness and the safety of intervention in various pathways and various disease, disease states. But not all of those are equally promising places, we would argue, to put a new oral drug. Uh, you know, so for example, in Oncology, uh, the value proposition of an oral is is different than it is in a field like immunology. Um, you know, when you get into immunology, you're talking chronic, non-life-threatening diseases, and those patients really uh, should have uh, oral beds if you can make them. And yet, they're pretty sparse, at least right now in INI. Um, it's getting better. I think there's been a lot of effort put into that over the past uh, five years or so. But the fast 15, 20 years in, in INI, in a lot of ways, it's been this quiet revolution, right? The, the pathways, you know, antibodies against specific pathways have been developed that have been shown to be 
profoundly effective against diseases like psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, you know, just look at what Dupixin is doing for atopic derm. I mean, there's no better validation that, you know, the IL-23 pathway is important than to look at the activity of Skyrizia and the various things it works on. So we felt like looking at immunology, we had this unusually clear, you know, in, the, in my professional experience, almost unique roadmap that had been laid out before us by these predecessor antibodies. And our job as people with an interesting technology, a chemistry focus as a company, uh, and some insights into where that technology might work, our job was to look at that playing field and say, okay, number one, where do we think we can uh, attack this and, and potentially make useful drugs? And number two, which of those would be the most important to do it? And that's how we landed in immunology with, you know, what is a considerably narrower approach than we started the company, right? When you start a company like that, literally the whole world is open. So it's much narrower than it used to be, but there's so much to do just in the relatively narrow area we're looking at, which is, you know, in INI with uh, targets that generally are well validated by marketed antibodies. Mm -hmm. So, that's you know, that's how we landed here. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, it, it's interesting as you talk about these strategic decisions that a CEO of a biotech company would make. Um, you know, I, I was thinking it's very relevant to, um, and in particular, the, the um, you know, the, the emphasis of, you know, the, if you think about small molecules versus uh, antibodies um, and how we're all going to be potentially affected by the Inflation Reduction Act. And, and um, you know, I was thinking yep. that all of these strategy issues, uh, you know, they kind of intersect in an interesting way. I don't know if um, we have Alex Harding here who wrote a really interesting piece on this. And I, did, I think Rob wanted to both say something or ask you a question, Kevin, but also introduce Alex. Sure. Yeah, well, first of all, um, I think, you know, Kevin is another example of an absolutely fantastic CEO and management team that are being rewarded for their extraordinary work. So, Kevin, congratulations on uh, what you guys are building there. And I think, look, I think um, innovation comes in many forms, and sometimes we don't think about the innovation of uh, of convenience and having a patient being able to actually take a drug for a long period of time. And in many, uh, in, in, in many cases, uh, patients have to, patients and physicians have to deal with this dilemma of there may be oral options, but, but the oral options have much less efficacy than the antibody or biologic options. And so there's always this question of, you know, do you, do you go with the convenience versus uh, the more effective product? And um, Kevin, it seems like what you guys are doing is you're trying to solve that dilemma to be able to say, you, know, you don't have to have that. You can have both. And that obviously is a winning strategy. Yeah, thanks, Rob. That, that's that's a, a great way to phrase it. Um, and, and I think there's, there's a, another wrinkle that you touched on briefly here that I, I personally feel is very important, which is, um, I don't know, you can look at the psoriasis market, for example. It, it, the, there are far more pit, many people who have moderate to severe psoriasis and are eligible for systemic therapies then actually get systemic therapies. And our supposition is that at least part of the reason for that is that most of the effective systemic therapies available are uh, expensive, uh, relatively expensive injectables. Um, and this may or may not be uh, feasible for large swaths of folks, right? So there is a chance that a good oral coming along uh, will help democratize that market just a little bit uh, and expand the playing field, uh, get to more patients who really need these drugs. And I think that's that's what's exciting about it, right? That, that, you know, yes, we could in principle shift to what we would argue is a better modality and, and in the process maybe reach more patients, uh, which is, is pretty cool. I think that's kind of why we're all in this business. Um, and that's Absolutely. a great feeling. Absolutely. And um, I did want to follow up on Daphne's uh, point to try to get Alex in here. And um, Alex, uh, for those of you who haven't read, Alex wrote an extraordinarily insightful article in uh, the Timmerman Report about the Inflation Reduction Act. And um, uh, Alex, obviously, we're seeing a lot of activity on, on drug pricing and drug pricing reform. Even this past week, we saw President Biden 
essentially uh, in, uh, um, initiating an executive order for the um, HHS to report their plans on how they're going to lug, lower drug costs and and uh, and um, look at new payment models for uh, delivery and um, access to care. So we're seeing a lot on that front. And the Inflation Reduction Act, um, I think a lot of companies are trying to figure out exactly where it's going to land. Um, and you wrote, again, an, a, an extraordinary piece. So I wanted to ask for your take and give kind of a summary on the IRA. And maybe we can get into this a little bit, particularly as it relates to um, companies like Kevin's that may have small molecules and, um, and uh, multiple indications that they have to think about in terms of uh, that development plan. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. And thanks, Stephanie, also for inviting me to participate in this. It's exciting to be here. And I think it's a good segue um, from Kevin and the discussion on DICE's accomplishment, which is really exciting. Uh, and it's uh, particularly unfortunate that the Inflation Reduction Act is effectively disincentivizing the investment and innovation for small molecules um, and other uh, other molecules that are approved through an NDA pathway and, and in favor of comparatively in favor of biologics, which sometimes are less convenient for patients and can be more expensive to make. So um, I think that's a, it's a good segue and, and hopefully is not too much of an impediment for what DICE is working on, which looks really exciting. Um, so maybe just to jump into a little bit of a background on what I had written for the Timmermer report, um, and hopefully people have had a chance to read it, or maybe this will be a motivation to, to subscribe to the Timmermer report if you haven't already. Um, but I was, the, the impetus for me writing that article was kind of scratching my head at the stock market reaction to um, the Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed back in August and represents probably the most significant reform of drug pricing in, in many years in this country. Um, and as you probably know, there was pretty minimal reaction in the stock market and the XBI to uh, this act. And I think as we look more carefully at what the Inflation Reduction Act entails, especially for pre-commercial small molecule biotech companies, it's really pretty impactful. Um, there's a nice report written by Akash Tiwari at Jeffries where he and his team did an analysis of what an NPV and net present value might look like for a hypothetical pre-commercial small molecule in oncology under a couple of different scenarios with the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and it resulted in a drastic reduction in the net present value of that asset. So I think it's important to be thinking about this. Um, and from conversations that I've had with people just informally over the last couple of months, there seems to be a bifurcation where you have some people that are really taking this seriously and some people who are are not and are kind of shrugging their shoulders at it. And I think in that camp of skeptics, what I've heard is people saying that this act can't can't last in its current manifestation and something's going to have to change. And, you know, I hope they're right, um, but hope isn't the strategy. And I think we have to start thinking about how we as companies can start to respond to the Inflation Reduction Act to mitigate the impact on, on future commercial revenues and to make sure that investment and innovation is still feasible. So that's what the impetus for writing the article was. Um, and I went through in the article a few different approaches that companies could take to address this concern. And by the way, I think companies are probably already starting to think about this and maybe in fact taking some actions already to address some of these issues. So a couple of things are pretty obvious. You know, if you have the flexibility, I think companies will likely start to prioritize biologics in their pipeline over small molecules. Um, there's also the possibility of raising launch prices to sort of compensate for future discounts on Medicare prices. But there's a limit to what you can accomplish with those two levers. You know, you can't raise your launch prices too much higher. They're already under quite a lot of scrutiny. Um, and your pipeline isn't something that you can completely pivot overnight to switch to an entire biologics platform uh, for your company if you've been focused on small molecules. So beyond those two levers, I think a few other things that companies are looking at. One is prioritizing larger indications first. So rather than go into an ultra-orphan indication with a fast-to-market approach, 
I think companies are going to start looking to get to that larger indication first. The reason for that is in the Inflation Reduction Act, um, essentially at, the, at year nine of approval, in your first, your first approval, there's uh, the potential for Medicare to start discounting your price. And so if you had, let's say you have indication one, indication two, and indication two gets an approval three years after indication one, then instead of having nine years to reach your peak sales, you really only have six because your clock got started with indication one three years earlier. So that provides an incentive for companies to focus on the larger indication for their first approval. Kind of along the same lines, I think companies will maybe take a second thought about a fast to market strategy and maybe not going for an accelerated approval, but going for a full approval with a more robust trial where they think they can ramp up their sales more rapidly after they get that approval. And then another thing that I think is an interesting possibility is companies taking the approach of developing multiple molecules. So you can imagine a scenario where you have a mechanism that's relevant in two indications. Um, a company might say, okay, we're going to get an approval in indication one with one molecule and then get an approval in indication two with a second completely separate chemical entity. And the reason to do that is that then you start the clock on your pricing for that second indication only once you get the approval in the second indication. So instead of losing that time in my prior example, say three years, interval where you can't ramp up sales uh, any further. So you're limited to say six years in that scenario. Now you have that full nine year time horizon. And then where that would get really interesting is if indication one and indication two are orphan indications, because as people may know on this call, the IRA specifically call, carves out um, drugs that are approved in a single orphan indication. So if you got an approval with one drug in indication one, which is an orphan indication, then that drug would be exempt from the, the price discounting of the IRA. You get approval on in indication two with, this, with a separate molecule, that drug would also be exempt from price discounting. So that's a scenario that I think companies are gonna be looking at. You know, Alex, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking to myself, you know, if only the people who wrote this legislation actually understood our industry, because some of the things, you know, if you think about this idea of a trade-off of, you know, do you develop another uh, slightly different molecule and then take that through clinical studies uh, and put in all the costs to do that? Or do you limit yourself, for example, in the other example you were using to only one orphan indication uh, just so you don't run into this issue? I mean, mm -hmm. these trade-offs, we, we, you know, spent quite a lot of time as an industry trying to avoid this outcome. And you know, I think there's still, you know, a very active effort to try to see if we can influence some of the nuances uh, of this legislation. But some of it just strikes me as, I mean, first of all, your, your, the things, the analysis that you did is really helpful and very thoughtful. And, I, and I'm curious to hear what Kevin has to say about also if Josh is beginning to think about this in his modeling. But it just strikes me that people who wrote this just don't understand the industry. And it's frustrating. Yeah, it's disappointing. It's clearly not the spirit of what the lawmakers had in mind um, and um, frustrating that, that they didn't consult more with the people who are actually doing the work here. Yeah. Kevin, as you're hearing this, any thoughts come to mind? I'm sure you've been uh, following this as well. We have, Daphne, but, you know, I, I would say it's still developing. I think there's so many angles uh, to pursue that we don't have our arms fully around it yet. We're obviously closely attuned to it right now it feels a little bit like you know if the legislation stays in place in its current form it's going to have a number of other unintended consequences which i think uh <laughs> i think uh alex just pointed out a couple of the nice ones to, that could blow back in funny ways right so it'll get to be almost like tax strategy where all kinds of bizarre things make sense just because of this overhang having said that um I do think, you know, and I'd love to claim forethought on this, but obviously we were we were in motion with our plans long before the IRA appeared. Uh, I do think the idea of going for larger indications first fits nicely into the strategy we're following. So that's part of the reason we haven't been as acutely uh, anxious about it as we might otherwise have been. So uh, 
we're following it. Uh, we're beginning to think carefully about it. Um, but right now we are looking like we're going to be in a space that um, has some advantages. Mm-hmm. Bruce um, and Josh. So Bruce, I'm wondering if you guys are thinking about this as you're creating new companies and then Josh, uh, whether this is going into your modeling yet, or if you guys still uh, waiting a little while to take this into account. Yeah, I'd say we haven't really thought about it from the perspective of the new companies that we're starting, but in our existing portfolio, we are hearing it when we're in deal dialogues with pharma already. They are already starting to include terms in, in deals, you know, licensing deals that say, look, if we're put on the list and the IRA cuts our price by 40%, we want a royalty reduction or we want lower sales milestones by X percent. And so these terms are already finding their way in. So pharma's using it as leverage to, you know, squeeze on especially downstream deal terms already. Yeah. I, I think from, from our lens, these are kind of rich people problems. Um, you know, if, if a company is so lucky to have the kind of commercial success that is going to wind, wind, land them in the crosshairs of the Medicare negotiation <laughs> under the IRA, it, it means that they're, you know, they, they, they've generated the kind of commercial success and value creation that, you know, still makes them, them big winners and, and maybe towards the end, you know, not, not winning quite as big as they otherwise would have, but, but still you know, very attractive returns from, from where we're starting probably does affect some of the larger pharma companies who have products that, that may be more exposed. You know, one of the arguments I've, I've heard is that, you know, it's those, those final cash flow heavy years of every product that really helps fund pharma's, uh, M&A activities around biotechs where we might actually kind of paradoxically see a curtailment of, of M&A dollars, whereas others kind of feel like, well, this is just going to pressure pharma companies to deliver more growth and, and require um, uh, more acquisitions to, to deliver that. So you know, we're, we're still a ways out from really figuring out how that, how that plays out. But you know, I think for many of the smaller at mid-sized biotech companies, if you know, if they were so lucky to get to that point where they'd fall under the, the negotiation framework, it would it would be a good problem for them to have because it mean, it would mean they they had had that much success. Well, one of the things in my in my very unscientific um, uh, survey of CEOs of both small and large pharma, um, I'm hearing the same thing as what Alex said. People are there. Are some folks who are very serious about it and looking at many of the potential um, kind of outputs from it, whereas others are saying, hey, this is just like we've seen with Clinton healthcare proposal that we thought was going to end the world and Obamacare that we thought was going to end the world, um, etc. So there are people are all over the place. But I, I do want to emphasize that many of the things that Alex pointed out as potential implications, if the legislation stays in place as it is currently, are really mind-bending for uh, the way that particularly uh, one and two product companies think about developing their drugs uh, in terms of finding a molecule that's safe and continuing to add on to, um, to indications. And one other thing, Josh, to your point, I think for pharma, one of the things that'll be interesting to watch is if, if you do have an incentive to essentially develop your drug upfront before you launch it and therefore do all of your or indications before you launch, that could be a win for pharma because small companies are going to have a very hard time doing that as opposed to doing the sequential development that we're used to. So I think one of the other things to watch is whether pharma becomes a more necessary partner for smaller companies because you don't want to have to go through indication development over time without having the time to recoup that, uh, that expense. Yeah, there, there's been so much complaining about the IRA, but I, honestly, I think Alex's framework of how it may distort the industry with all these perverse incentives is is really the strongest case I've seen made against it, right? Because all these, you know, all these machinations that you're envisioning these companies going through don't serve patients' interests the way that they should, right? Delaying access to to a smaller part of the market because you don't want the clock to start ticking until you're ready to address the bigger part of the market. Like that is, 
that's not congruent with the mission of the industry. You know, having to, to replicate molecules and parallel process them to target different approaches again, it's like, well, that's just kind of absurdly wasteful. So, you know, hopefully that framework can start to influence the implementation or even revision because as i said like that these are the arguments that i think resonate the most against the the way that the ira has been laid out yeah um and speaking of serving patients one you know briefly touch on the makina hearing and the impact on accelerated approval um, obviously, we've been talking a lot about um, how to get drugs for rare diseases and underserved conditions to patients quicker. Uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about strategies for expanding accelerated approval because that incentivizes the sponsor to move something forward and make it available. And of course, one of the key issues with accelerated approval, approval with now 300 drugs on the market um, in 30 years is that um, you know, there, there's been criticism about the fact that we're not pulling drugs back after they're shown to, to not be effective. So, um, you know, obviously there was a really interesting adcom this week um, and where it was voted 14 to 1 that Makina should be pulled from the market. Uh, you know, I think I heard Bruce comment on this on Twitter and, and just in general, I think most of us in the industry Feel like it is important to uh, pull drugs that aren't working that were approved through the accelerated approval path. So I, I don't I know we don't have much time to really talk about that. Um, there was a few other items, Josh, that I think you wanted to cover, and I think you had a follow up for Kevin. But we have seven minutes, and we also want to highlight a few under the radar uh, people and institutions, which is something we're going to be doing every week at the end of the uh, program. So Josh, I'll leave it to you as to what you want to highlight, and then maybe we could just stop. Uh, Four minutes before the end, so we can do the under the radar. Yeah, yeah, you know, so, since since um, we have Kevin with us, I guess one other theme that to me is is important and embodied by Dice is that you know there are, there are a number of smaller emerging companies developing drugs for uh, I and I indications, and what I've seen. And, you know, this is something that we often see in our industry is that companies pit themselves against other companies, investors pit companies against other companies with the here's why ours is the best. Here's why ours is better than theirs. Losing sight of the fact that, you know, the, the, the TAM of the INI space, I think, is 100 billion annual revenue, implying that. There's, there's so much room in this sandbox to accommodate so many different companies that, you know, they, 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 get, they, they get dragged down by kind of nitpicking each other's data and yeah. trying to make it an us versus them dynamic. And, and they lose sight of the fact that it's not about that, right? It's about having different options for, for a very, very large unmet medical need that, that's evolving. And one thing... I think Dice has done very well is stayed out of that fray, while while others were you know, in some ways trying to drag them into it. <laughs> um, so to me, it's like it's it's an important recurring theme for the industry for companies who just sp- spend so much time creating noise and haze by by trying to be the best or perceived as the best, uh, often well before there's actually enough information to validate that or not. Whereas if they had spent more time articulating the vast unmet medical need, the, 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 um, the importance of having multiple different options for patients, it's, it's, it's never a one-size-fits-all, I think the industry would generally benefit from that. So, uh, you know, Kevin, I'm not sure if you have a specific response to that, but that's something that I've noted that I think you've done very well is that you've really focused on, you know, your program and how you're going to stay differentiated haven't really been slinging mud in a way that I see other companies do from time to time. Yeah, well, thanks for that observation, Josh. We, we, we strive for that anyway. Um, you know, I like to point out to people that, uh, as you just said, so, so just staying in the psoriasis, kind of psoriatic arthritis world, for example, there are five good injectables, uh, 217s, 223s, you know, Humira plus other TNFs. And patients do well on all of those drugs in varying ways, and I think it's good for patients that they have options. And I hope that materializes in the oral space. You know, there was a lot of uh, 
we had a lot of invitations to try and trash <laughs> Ducra, for example, before it got approved. And we tried to stay out of that uh, mud wrestling match by just pointing out, you know, we think we can compete with Ducra on the basis of, uh, you know, having an efficacy and safety profile that looks pretty good. Uh, or if we can get one of those, we think we can compete. Um, and that otherwise Duker looks like a pretty good drug and, uh, you know, and patients need good drugs. And, and I don't know, I just think it's, uh, it's bad karma to wish ill <laughs> on people. This is, this is a very hard business, you know, yeah. it's a really rough business and, uh, well said. patients, patients, patients need these drugs. So there you go. Yeah, well said, and and I I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think that um, we could all just be a little bit nicer to each other. So um, we were going to cover a couple people who are under the radar, and uh, I'm going to have have Rob start um, with. Uh, I think you had a couple of, of people you wanted to highlight, and then uh, Josh, and then I'll go last. Well, I'll keep it to one since we're short on time. But I know that um, uh, this past week we have the Biohaven. Um, acquisition completing uh, $11.6 billion from Pfizer and Biohaven spinning out some products on their own. Um, but one person who may be under the radar uh, in this acquisition is the chief commercial officer of Biohaven, and that's BJ Jones. Um, as a commercial person, I have uh, mad respect for people who do the hardest things. And one of the hardest things to do is to be a small company and compete in a large market against big pharma competitors where it was thought to be that you could only win with scale. And BJ and his team, by using kind of next generation commercial um, uh, 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 methods and by being really smart, uh, were able to do really, really well with, uh, with Nurtech and to um, basically attract uh, a huge number from Pfizer. So BJ is also a member of an organization that I co-founded called Biopharma Leaders of Color. Um, and uh, for those uh, listeners out there who happen to be uh, folks of color in the industry, I'd invite you to uh, check us out on LinkedIn uh, and on Twitter under block uh, underscore US. Uh, lots of stuff going on with that group, but I'll leave it at that for now. And hopefully we can uh, talk more about it later. Thanks, Rob. Josh? Oh, did we lose Josh? All right. Well, I'll go next until... Josh comes back on. So um, I wanted to highlight Chef. Um, he, he goes by Chef State, Station. Um, he's a really wonderful person. He's an investor and trader of biotech stocks. And actually, um, one of the things he does is he highlights companies that are themselves under the radar. But I wanted to highlight Chef because of his work um, as a philanthropist and his passion for helping children with cancer. He's a longtime supporter of the Children's Cancer Association, which helps fund chemotherapy for families and uh, provides mental health resources for patients. And one of the things he does, which I think is just super impressive, is given how little, little time all of us have, he actually takes his own time and is a chemo pal to uh, kids that are going through chemotherapy. He actually spends his time playing Mario Kart with them and celebrating graduations with donuts uh, he's just a wonderful person. I really encourage you all to follow him on Twitter and to get to know him personally. Josh, it's your turn. Um, and actually, if you want to wrap up the session when you're done. All right. Can you hear me now? Yep. Yep. Right. yep. yep. Sorry about that. Just disconnected. But, all right. So I'm going to, I'm going to highlight um, Brett Copeland. He's the executive director of DEBRA. That's the dystrophic epidermal lysis bullosa patient advocacy group. He's also the father of a, a DEB patient. And he has been an absolute force enabling uh, innovation and awareness of uh, epidermal lysis bullosa and, and particularly dystrophic epidermal lysis bullosa, which can, I mean, just be a, a huge burden to patients and families. And his, he, he, as I said, he's an absolute force with influence throughout Washington. He's enabled innovation. And we're now on the cusp of, of not one, but potentially multiple new therapies coming along for, for these patients. Uh, next year, we, we should hopefully see the launch of Crystal Bio's gene therapy uh, product for, for dystrophic epidermal lysis bullosa. And, and a reminder of just how important, how powerful the patient advocacy groups can be. Obviously, the CF Foundation 
someone I think most are familiar with, uh, Jared Yeff, also very powerful. But you know, Brett's Brett's been such an enabling force in that community, and uh, just deserves a ton of uh, respect for what he's been able to accomplish and and helping his own daughter in the process. Great. Um, thanks, Josh. And so what we're going to wrap up for this week's episode, and we're hoping that people will go get drinks. Uh, it depends on where you're located. I, I don't think we're going <laughs> to move it to 2 p.m. Um, it sounds like we're not going to. You gonna mean we weren't supposed to have started? <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> yeah, you should. You actually should open the door early. Otello might be drinking somewhere in Italy right now, but um, I don't think we're moving it to 2. I think we're going to stay at 3 because it seemed like there was a balance uh, but I wanted to thank uh, just great conversation with everyone today and to also um, special th- shout out to Kevin and Alex for joining us today as special guests. So thanks so much, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, thank cool. you. <laughs> Have a thanks good weekend. All.